you brought your Bibles, will you open with me to the back of the book? Revelation 21 and 22 is where we'll be. Revelation 21 and 22, I recognize it's a bit of a long passage, but I've, I'm going to quit apologizing for it because, again, it's just, it's just beautiful. And there's something really uh, healthy about this just kind of washing over us. So Revelation 21, let's give our attention to the reading of God's Word tonight. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for the murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb, And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain. And he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels. And on the gates the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the, on the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, twelve thousand stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold, clear as glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysophrase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. 
And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl. And the, city of, and the street of the city was pure gold, transparent as glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. And the city had no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of the Lamb gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. And he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers the prophets and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil and the filthy still be filthy and the righteous still do right and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay everyone for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The Spirit and the bride say, Come, and let the one who hears say, Come, and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires to take the water of life without price. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. Indeed, amen. I wonder if you know what a taboo is, and I'm not talking about the game. A taboo is a topic that a culture decides that it's just not going to talk about openly. It used to be that these things back in the day were primarily sexual. 
Not sure whether you've noticed, but those days are over. <laughs> there really is no area in which you can venture sexually. And after, you know, some 17 years of campus ministry, I can tell you that venturing into any sexual conversation would yield an extraordinarily healthy discussion. But the second, though, that you got into a different topic, things changed. It was D.A. Carson, from whom I've been getting so much of this material, who first introduced this to me. He said, I think that this present culture only has one real taboo left, and it's the subject of death. In many ways, and, and it's funny, as I began to think about it, it really rang true. Again, a topic of what do you think about homosexuality would yield hours of lively discussion. But the second I said, let me tell you about how my brother died of cancer. Or let me tell you about the young lady who died while on her way home from RUF a number of years ago as she was struck by a drunk driver. Suddenly, you could cut the air as with a knife. Your generation is is anesthetized to the idea of death. It is the last cultural taboo. Carson even told a story about a much-beloved uh, believing woman from his local church who was dying of cancer. And they were having a prayer meeting to pray for the woman's healing. And in the midst of the prayer time, Carson's wife took up the prayer and, like everyone else, prayed for her healing. But at the end of the prayer, she added this one little tag. She said, but Lord, if it is her time to die, will you let her die well? The crowd, after the, the prayer time was over, was horrified and even confronted Carson's wife on how she could pray such a thing. But look, for generations of Christians, they have been preoccupied by the topic. I find it very interesting. For those of you who have ever been through a death in your family, you'll know that we treat death very antiseptically in our culture. And for that reason, we don't know how to deal with it when it rises up within our own midst. And I would say it robs us of something important that we must have now. Look, my entire premise this week about the doctrine of glorification is that getting firmly fixed in your mind about what is to come then will lock in for you change and real alternate ways of looking at life in the now. It's kind of like one pastor friend of mine actually shared with me about a golf illustration. Bear with me, we keep returning there. But he told me one time that a lot of times one of the only ways to fix your swing is to figure out where that thing is going to land, you know? That is, you know, you can talk about your takeaway, your stance, your grip, and sort of your downswing all you want. But sometimes it really helps you to know exactly where you want that club to finish. And that in and of itself can oftentimes correct parts of where you're going. That's been my premise. That if we can somehow see the destiny to which God has called His people, perhaps it will strengthen us and change where we are in the now. Not just when it comes our time to actually die. Look, y'all, I have seen it happen numerous times where young men who will get engaged, we actually had one this week, interestingly enough, young men who will get engaged as they rejoice right here in front of us. <laughs> I'm amazed, and this certainly doesn't apply to you since you're such an upstanding young man, but I've been amazed at how, I don't even know you, but we'll have a conversation later here from up front. Um, 
Bear with me along with the sermon. Um, but I've been amazed at some of the laziest men, once they get engaged, will immediately shape up. It's fascinating. In other words, the prospect of impending marriage causes them, the future glory that awaits them, will cause them all kinds of change in the now. And that actually is quite an apt description of what we have in Revelation 21-22 because the prediction here is that, that what is in store for God's people is an image that can only be described to be as a bride adorned for her husband Jesus. Tonight I want to give you three things about the bride. We see, first of all, the bride's new location. We'll then see, secondly, the bride's new look. And then finally, we'll see the bride's new life. You see, they all start with the letter L. Preacher tricks, right? This was for free for you. The bride's new location, the bride's new look, and then the bride's new life. Let's dive into it. First of all, verse 8 gives us, the first eight verses of chapter 21 gives us the glimpse of the kind of place in which God's people will live. And look, there's something that has to be emphasized here, and I've already sort of touched on it. And that is that heaven, the dwelling place of Christians, is not to be up in the sky. Look at verse 2. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, what? Coming down out of heaven. That is, heaven is something that is coming much more to us than that we are going to it. This is huge. Listen to Scotty Smith, wonderful little commentary called The Unveiled Hope on this, where he says, It's more accurate to say that heaven is going to come to us rather than say that we are going to heaven. According to the scriptures, our eternal celebration is not going to take place someplace up in the clouds, but rather right here in God's world, which will be totally remade and renewed. Y'all, this is absolutely foundational for you to understand where your RUF minister is coming from. Your RUF minister believes, as we assume that he does, that it is actually heresy to separate in, a, in, a, in, an, in an awkward way the spiritual from the physical. An over-separation there is what we call Gnosticism. And there are all kinds of Gnostic views about the afterlife that Christians have never believed and actually fought for generations to purge from her teaching. And that is that somehow heaven is to be occupied by this sort of ephemeral, uh, 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 disembodied spirit state where we'll just sort of, you know, waft throughout eternity or something like that. That's not, and, and here's the reason why I know that you think this. I don't think that a year went by when I was teaching at the University of Memphis and Ole Miss, when someone did not ask me, just as a curiosity, Les, do you think that we'll know each other in heaven? Think about the premise to that question. Of course, my answer is, of course we will. <laughs> because the existence that we have there will be continuous with the one that we have now. To deny as much is to deny the goodness of God's creation. I feel certain that many of your seminars have gone in this direction, but it bears repeating now that what we are waiting for is not some remote sort of space that we're headed towards, but rather a closeness, a nearness. Eugene Peterson says, Heaven is not remote either in time or space, but it is immediate. Heaven is not what we wait for until the rapture or where we go when we die, but what is 
barely out of the range of our senses, but brought to our senses by St. John's visions. We are now, listen to this line, this is so good. We are now able to look upon the events around us, not as a hopeless morass of pagan deception and human misery, but as the birth pangs of a new creation and a beckoning to participate in God's remaking of God's creation. Do you hear that? The suffering and the struggles around us are nothing more than birth pangs. It's nothing more than sort of the the whipping up of the orchestra, getting ready for a worldwide, colossal, global healing. And what we find in the verses later on is that we serve a God whose essential nature, you've got to grasp this, is to make all things new. That's the kind of God He is. The the, the Christian God is one that looks and says, I am more committed to newness than you are, which seems strange for our generation, does it not? We are addicted to the desire for newness. Can there be any other explanation for our endless obsession with plastic surgery, with efforts to go to enhance this, to tuck that, to straighten this, than a longing that's placed inside the human heart for things to be new. (laughs) As a 44-year-old man, I can tell you, it gets worse with every passing year. And Revelation comes along and says that in the end, there will be a location for you that is an eternal new. That will never stop being new. Things do not deteriorate. What will happen to the second law of thermodynamics? I don't know. But in the end, it becomes something that enhances rather than takes away from it. So first of all, the bride's new location. But notice secondly, the bride's new look. The bride has a brand new look. Now look, of all of the sort of textual things that I need you to pay attention to. This one's a huge one because the first time you hear it, it's going to sound weird. But the bulk of the passage that I read, I think, is describing the look of the bride. Why? And it came from a small little thing that I would not have noticed unless Dennis Johnson and the Triumph of the Lamb had brought me to it. A wonderful book, by the way, in Revelation. Notice what it says there in verse 9. The angel comes down and says, Come, I will show you the bride the wife of the Lamb. The very next verse says, And he carried me away in the Spirit to a high mountain and showed me what? The holy city. Did you catch that? The descriptions that you got, and honestly, this is why I bored you with those things. 12,000 stadia. What is that? I have no idea. 144 cubits. Why is he going through this? The answer is, is that these descriptions are not about a city that we will inhabit. Listen. But they are a symbolic picture of the way in which we will be viewed one day. This is what, uh, this is what Johnson says. Actually, this is from Scotty Smith. Excuse me. He says, All my life I thought that we Christians would spend eternity walking on streets of gold, having gone through the pearly white gates into the eternal city, whose cubicle walls are made of all kinds of precious jewels. He said, Now I find out that we, the church, the wife of Jesus, are the city. That's the image. (laughs) Now look, I know some of you are looking at me a little strange, thinking, you know something, Les? In my most rapturously romantic moments, there's never been a time when I've looked at my girlfriend and said, my darling, (laughs) 
You look like a city. <laughs> but look, if you will go with me on this image, you will find that this passage leaps off the page once you go with it. First of all, notice this. There is beauty in the precious stones. I already talked about this a little bit, so I won't belabor it. But look, y'all, remember, and, and verses 18 through 21 show that the stones appear are the same stones almost that appear on this little breastplate that Aaron, the high priest, wore as he went into the temple. What is he saying? He's looking and saying that in the end, you will be cloaked in loveliness. My predecessor in RUF at, the, uh, uh, at Old Miss, uh, Jeffrey Lancaster, dear friend, I remember the first time Jeffrey ever brought me to tears when he was preaching. And he's done it many times since because I love that man. But he was talking about when his daughter was very small, two, maybe three years old. And he talked, she's now actually all grown, senior in high school. But he remembers when she was little, that little Lucy would come crawling up onto his lap. And on every now and then, just an occasion, just kind of look up at him with her big eyes. And she would say, Daddy, is I pretty? Now look, what I think is at the pulse, at the root I would even go so far as to say a lot of what motivates most of the hours of your day is a desire to have that question answered. It's what you obsess about, gentlemen. Ladies, it's what you obsess about in the desire to know that someone could look at me all the way through and still find something that they say is lovely. Jesus looks and promises that there's going to be a day when he can look at you and say, you are beautiful. Secondly, though, we see the, the detailed description of the heights of the walls. I do know that for some of you, you have longed to be able to take the book of Revelation seriously, but this is one of those passages that's going to foil you. Because to be honest, listen, this is Dennis Johnson on this. He says, if you look at the heights of the walls of the city, the wall would end up standing 1,365 miles above the earth, which would extend it into the orbit of most man-made satellites. It's absurd to take this literally, but listen to what he says. He says, these measurements, however, are not to be understood as physical data, but as enhancing the vision's imagery concerning the church's, listen, immensity and security. I love that. He goes on to say, John is not describing an eternally secure place, but he's describing an eternally secure peoples. Isn't that beautiful? Look, all that stuff about the foundations of the city about laid out with gold, is to scream to you that it is absolutely and utterly stable here. No more undulating upon the events of your life, but utter absolute security. And not only that, but absolute perfect safety as well. To know that in this place, nothing can touch me in the husband arms of Jesus. Thirdly, we also see that the last marker of the church, though, is her intense satisfaction. Man, chapter 22, verses 1 through 3, aren't they gorgeous? It looks and says, There, no more longing, no more wishing. Every hurt healed as she drinks water from the river of life and as she applies the healing balm of the trees that grow from beside the river. I really don't know what that means, but isn't it lovely? And its leaves are for the healing of the nations. 
Look, the fruit that comes to harvest there every single month symbolizes the fact that there will never be a time in heaven. This is huge. There will never be a time in heaven when your joys come up empty. And some of you know what I'm talking about. There are some people in this room who have actually had the privilege, or should I say the curse, of getting everything, humanly speaking, that you've imagined. You live in palaces. You are extremely athletic. You are beautiful and popular on a campus full of beautiful and popular people. But I wonder if you would be willing to admit, as I know that you must, that at the very moment of the realization that you have attained to that place, that you didn't think to yourself, it's not enough. And it registered emptiness. Again, with the golf illustrations, Kevin and I were talking after earlier this week, Kevin Teasley, um, we're talking about his, his first hole-in-one as we were sharing stories. And he talked about the fact he was playing with uh, one of his students who later on went to be my intern. That's how the conversation came up. And he said that after he had hit the shot and made the hole-in-one, he went on to the next tee box. And he was standing there, and his uh, student looked at him. He was like, man, Kevin, you finally got it. Your first hole-in-one. How does it feel? And Kevin said all of a sudden... There welled up inside of him an overwhelming emptiness. And he said, I, uh, I kind of feel the same. How many times can we look at the joys that we look at and say, finally, this will be the thing. Finally, this will be the nadir. This will be the place where I've arrived. And each time it comes up empty. Look, my friends, the bride's new look ensures for us that there will be an ultimate and never-ending satisfaction. No more will things turn up zeros. So we see the bride's new location. We see the bride's new look. We finish finally with the bride's new life. Because I don't think I can prepare you any better for your own deathly hallows than to finish as does chapter 22. Because what he says in the midst of that is something that pervades, honestly, the entire book. If there's a theme to the book of Revelation, it is this one point. Did you notice it in chapter 21, verse 3? It says there, and it focuses on the fact that the essence of being in heaven is to be with God. That's the point. 21, verse 7 says that that there he will be a father to us all. 21 verse 22 mentions the fact that there will be no temple. Why? Because a temple is a place that mediates, as it were, your experience of God. But you won't need it then. There your experience of Him is immediate. He is ultimately accessible there. Even the dimensions of the city scream this fact, right? The picture of us is in the shape, by the way, of a perfect cube. Which might not sound interesting until you realize how that theme is carried through Scripture. Wonderful theme picked up by G.K. Beale in his uh, commentary on Revelation. Where he said, if you go back to the Garden of Eden and look at the layout of the rivers as they're described there, it comes to us in a perfect square. Later on when you get to the tabernacle, you find that the very last room in that makeshift tent was where the presence of God came and the holiest of holies was in the shape, you got it, of a perfect cube. 
So that by the end of time, what's the image saying? The image is saying that we will dwell there with Him in the Holy of Holies. Why else did the veil rip upon Jesus' death except to say that all of human history is rushing towards that? Y'all, I don't know any better way to say this than this. Heaven is heavenly, not because it will be the cessation of pain or the end of death or the finishing of sorrow, even though it will be all of those things. No. Heaven is heavenly because Jesus is there. And if there is some conception that you have of Christianity or of the afterlife that is devoid of interacting with a person, then I would wonder at your desire to go there. Because the Bible's descriptions culminate in that. They crescendo in that. They look and say that the stuff there is immaterial compared to being with Him. That it is union and communion that finally sums it all up. Look, I wonder if when you got down to verses 14 and 15 in chapter 22, if you got a little nervous. I'll be honest with you, verse 15 in chapter 22 could describe any of us. I certainly could describe my own heart. And you begin to wonder, I think, oftentimes whether or not John is saying that the good guys go to heaven and the bad guys go to hell. Is that what he's saying? But that's not the gospel. The gospel actually comes right back at us in verse 17, just two verses away. Did you notice it? The Spirit and the bride say, Come and let the one who is, what? Thirsty. Let the one who is thirsty. The prophet Isaiah says, Ho, let the thirsty come. Let anyone who thirsts, let him come and drink. In other words, if you are afraid that verse 15 finds you on the outside of Christ tonight, if you're afraid that that does, then all you're uncovering is your own thirst. And did you hear how many times, did you hear how many times in the reading of the passage that the water of the gospel is offered to you without cost, that's free to you. In other words, the only thing that's keeping you from it <laughs> is this idea that you might bring something to it. All you need is need. The only thing that you have to have is nothing. Try to bring something and you'll get nothing. Because this gospel comes to the thirsty. And when it comes and quenches that thirst, it changes you in the now. It transforms the way you do everything. It looks and says, every evidence of death in my life, which is the definition of sin, has got to be gone. Because I see the vision of one who loves me more than anything else. I talk about preparing you for your death because honestly, in my years as a campus minister, it only faced me really once. I only had to bury one of my students. Her name was Laura Trependall. Laura was a student of mine and a sophomore at Ole Miss and uh, greatly involved and had a boyfriend who was very involved. And on one particular evening on her way home, a drunk driver swerved over into her lane and hit her head on and she died there in the car. We all went and gathered together and did the best that we could to keep things together. Her boyfriend was, a, was and is a very dear friend of mine. We spent a lot of time together in the ups and downs, but of all of the memories 
that struck me through that horrific week. The one that sticks to me was when I had to go with her boyfriend and with a member of her family to help clean out her room. How do you do that? We walked into her room right there off of Madison Avenue, just off the Oxford Square. And in walking into her room, we began to notice that Laura had painted stuff on the walls. An artist's heart is what she had. And on one side, she looked and had written across the top of her closet, said, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well with my soul. And I thought to myself, isn't that quaint? Until I looked back behind me and saw written the reason that it was well with her soul. Because plastered up there across the other wall in larger letters, she had this written. It said, the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will exult over you with singing. Zephaniah 3.17. Listen, my friend Laura Trependahl died well. Because in the end, she was transformed by the vision of one who would rejoice over her with singing. Is there anything like that in your destiny? Can your worldview sustain that? Because if not, perhaps you had better investigate this Jesus this summer to find in Him what no place else can offer. I want to finish our week with the last paragraph, as I think is almost obligatory to do, from C.S. Lewis's The Last Battle, the last of the Narnia Chronicles. This is perfect to end off with, and I'll finish with this. The things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all stories, and we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now, at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, but it goes on forever in which every chapter is better than the one before. Let's pray. And Lord Jesus, would you open to us the new chapters that you have in store? Would you show us the beauty that you are bringing to us to, the location of the new heavens and the new earth? Would you show us our new look, draped in loveliness like a like a groom looking down the aisle, calling his bride to himself, would you help us mentally to put ourselves as that bride and to look down the corridor of our own salvation and see you standing there, not frustrated with your foot tapping in impatience, but rather grinning from ear to ear, face beaming with what you have made us to be by your own blood. And will you let us get a glimpse of what it means to have a fellowship with you so great that it will even eclipse our own marriages, our own families, the closest of friendships.
Lord Jesus, only you can do that. And so would you draw all of these people, myself included, to yourself by your Spirit. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.